is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we bring you stories about, well, just about everything, from the arts to sports, from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now we bring you our Women of True Grit series. Our friend Edie Hand has come across many women whose stories of hardship, character, and perseverance caused her to write a book called Women of True Grit. Now Edie is bringing some of those women along with many others to our airwaves. Today, Edie brings us the story of Mary Sparks, a tale of faith and family as told by her son Sparky. Here's Edie. Mary Sparks exhibited strength of conviction throughout her life. But oddly enough, it all started with an affair, a stolen baby, and her Catholic faith. Here's her son Sparky to recount his mother's tale. I guess the time to start this story is in 1943. My mother fell in love with a married man who was about to ship off to the war. Mary couldn't bear the idea of losing her love, so she attempted to join the Women's Army Corps, a WAX for short. And when she joined the WAX, she took her physical and found out she was pregnant. My grandfather, great Polish gentleman, he shipped her to Chicago to a home for unwed mothers where she worked like a dog for several months and then had my sister. My sister who always made fun of me growing up and told me I was adopted. My grandmother took the train from Terre Haute, Indiana to Chicago to pick up my mother who had just had this child. And my mother had been very weak and very Really, I, I think she, they, were, they abused her from the standpoint of making her cook and clean for other people in this home. So my mother and grandmother had put my sister up for adoption. And the people were supposed to be there that afternoon to pick up my sister. But on the way to the train station, neither could shake the feeling that something just wasn't right. And my mother said, I can't give up this baby. I just can't do it. And my grandmother said, well, your father is not gonna let us come home with a baby. We have to give up this child. And my mother said, do you wanna give up the child? And my grandmother said, no, I don't want to. And my grandmother, who didn't speak English very well, Polish was her first language, told the cab driver to turn around when they got to the train station. And they went back to this home, walked in the door. The people who were adopting my sister were there to pick her up. And my mother just went in, grabbed my sister, and she and my grandmother ran down the steps, back into the cab, and fired off toward the train station. My grandmother, as they were running out, grabbed all the paperwork she could get a hold of with both hands and held it into her. And then they sorted it out on the train and, and destroyed it. 
But then they had Sparky's grandfather, Mary's father, to deal with. But that wouldn't be much of a problem. So then they got home to Terre Haute. My grandmama just told him he was just going to have to get used to it. A year or two later, a World War II prisoner of war returned home to Indiana and began courting Mary. But she felt like she had to hide her child out of shame. There's several stories of her hiding my sister from him when he would come pick her up for a date. My, my grandmother and grandfather ran a uh, boarding house. And while that provided useful cover for a while, it only had to fail once for the gig to be up. After they got serious and they started dating, my dad came in one day unannounced and there was my sister in a playpen. And my dad said, who is this baby? And my mother started crying and said, this is my child. And my dad said, well, who's the father? And my mother said, he has gone away. My dad looked down at her and said, well, this child needs a father. So I guess we need to get married, Mary. And that's how he proposed to mom. My sister found out all of this because this was a big secret in our family. We didn't know this story until my sister, when she was about 22, tried to get a passport. And she said, I was born in Terre Haute, Indiana. And they told her, called her back the next day and said, Miss Bauer, you were born in Chicago. What? You were born at a uh, home for unwed mothers. And my, my sister, who had tormented me all my life, telling me I was adopted. Uh, we, you know, and then we started finding out all this story. I always thought that my sister was treated a little bit differently than the other kids. And both, all the brothers and sisters on the Sparks side of the family, 11 of them, and all the brothers and sisters on the Cummins, which is, they had Americanized from Kaminsky uh, side of the family, uh, kept this a secret from all us kids. Growing up, nobody knew. And nobody needed to know. His parents didn't want any undue attention. And more than that, his father wanted his sister Sharon to have a loving home, full of love, conviction, and grief. And more of this remarkable story, an amazing love story. Our Women of True Grit series continues, Mary Sparks' story, after these messages. And we're back with our American stories and our Women of True Grit series and Mary Sparks' story. 
Her boyfriend, when he found out that her daughter, born out of wedlock, didn't have a father, proposed on the spot and raised the daughter as his own. Now we bring you the rest of Mary's story of faith and family, told again by her son, Sparky. Here's Edie. The Sparks family had no shortage of children, seven to be exact. And as good Catholics, you'd expect that. Mary and Jesse did their best to raise their kids well, with faith and family at the heart of all they did. But in 1973, that all would be put to the test. I was a student at uh, the University of Alabama. It was on a, uh, a Thursday morning in the spring. I get a call from my mother and my mother said, I need you home. And I said, well, okay. Uh, spring break is in a couple of months and I'm planning on coming home to the farm. And she said, no, I need you home today. I said, what's going on? Is dad okay? Your father's fine. And uh, I need you home. And I said, Mama, I've got a test tomorrow, Friday. I said, I've got a test. She said, tell your professor that you've got a family emergency and you need to come home. I need you to be with me for a few days. Are you sick? No. And Dad's okay? Yeah. What's the, what will I tell him the emergency is? I'm sure if you just tell him there's a family emergency, He'll let you take your test next week. I had the toughest professor on just about on campus teaching music history, Dr. Nicolosi. I, I knew I was dead. And that afternoon, went to see him, and I said, I have a family emergency. I'll be glad to take the test right now. But my mother has asked for me to be home in Indiana and I've got to leave. And he said, you just take the test next week and don't worry about it. If this is for your mother and it's a family emergency, then you need to go. I was sure that that man did not have a heart up until that point. <laughs> but I became convinced that maybe he was okay. Got in my car, drove through the night. You know, I was in shock. The whole thing, when I got in the car, I mean, I was so relieved when I got there to see all my brothers were okay because I knew something had happened to somebody and she just wasn't telling me. I mean, I was pretty sure I was coming up there for a funeral of some kind. What a relief it was to find out that wasn't the case. And yet there was still that burning question that even Sparky's siblings were asking. Why are you home? I said, I don't know. Mama wants me home, what's going on? She said, well, Daddy, the last two nights, Daddy slept in the barn. What is going on? We don't know. So we had this big breakfast. My mother had this huge plate of bacon and eggs and ham, and she said, here, take this out to the barn for your father. And I said, why is he sleeping out in the barn? Are you two getting divorced? She said, we're Catholic, 
we don't get divorced. Take this out to your father. I said, okay, I'm headed out to the barn. Hey, Daddy, he said, I thought you might be coming home. I said, what's going on? He said, I'm sure your mother will tell you when she's ready for you to know. Little did Sparky know that he wasn't just going to find out what was going on, but also the depths of his mother's convictions and the lengths that she would go to in order to follow through with them. So after breakfast and clean up, everybody's out doing their chores and mother said, come with me, we've got to go somewhere. We got in the car. I said, please tell me what's going on. She said, your father's had an affair with this young lady and he's gotten her pregnant. I need to talk her into giving us this baby so I can raise it right. So get in the car, let's go. She said, I just don't want you to say anything. So we drove to this lady's house, young lady, it was a small town, I knew her. And uh, we got to her house, her apartment, and she answered the door, she said, what do you want? My mother said, I'm Mary Sparks. You've been having an affair with my husband. I understand you're pregnant. She said, yes, I am. And I want to talk to you, please. May we come in? She said, this is my son, Sparky. She said, I know him. I said, well, we went in, we sat down. And she said, so here's the deal. She said, I will pay for all your expenses. She said, I'll give you $3,000 today. When the child is born, I'll give you $5,000. When the child is born and you sign the paper for us to adopt him. She said, how do you know it's gonna be a boy? And she said, we're Sparks's, that's all we have. She said, I'll raise him right. If you ever wanna be in his life, you can be. And she said, I know you probably don't feel too good about what you've done, but I'm not worried about that. She said, that's for God to decide, judge, not me. She said, will you pay my rent? She said, yes, I'll pay all your expenses. I'll pay your hospital bills, I'll pay everything. And when the child is born and we adopt and I know you're okay, then it ends and we will take the child to raise and I'll raise it as my my own child. She said, all right. She said, have you got the money now? She said, of course, I got it right here in my purse. And I said, I've got the paperwork. We signed it. We went by the attorney's office, had him notarize it. That's the way my brother Jake came into the world. He knew he was adopted from day one. All my brothers did but we also knew that we would treat him just like any other brother, and we did. Once again, the Sparks family, in the face of infidelity, was given a gift, and due to their faith, took a child in and accepted it without question as their own. Years later, I went to play golf with my dad. I said, I gotta ask you, did you and mom resume relations 
with each other? He said, of course. He said, it took two or three months, but your mother was tough as nails. But she always said that God would judge me. It wasn't her place to judge me. And we were married. I was her husband. She was my wife. That's just the way it was. There was a moment in time that I forgave your mother and years later she forgave me. And thanks to Edie Hand for the work there and thanks for Sparky. What a remarkable story and Mary Sparks, what a remarkable woman and great job on the production, Robbie. Just a beautiful job. And by the way, our lives are all messy, but if this is any testimony to what a, a true Christian walk looks like, this is it. And it's forgiveness, folks. And it's hard to do, but it's what obedient people of faith do. And my goodness, in other families, this would have been a divorce and a mess, and who knows what would have happened to that child. And in this family, the child is loved. I'll raise him right, Mary Sparks said to this poor young girl. And by the way, this is a different day. This is a different day. And to do this kind of thing, and to not worry about the social opprobrium, what people were gossiping about or talking about, really, what a, what a remarkable story. And again, share your stories with us, family stories, faith stories, any old kind of story that has this kind of grit and love. It's real, folks, and we only tell real-life stories here. No, no daisies and no rainbows. Life's tough. But how you deal with these circumstances, we can learn from stories like these. And the relationship got healed. The wife forgave. He forgave himself, too, because in the end, the guy's got to forgive himself. And of course, their God, well, forgave both of them. Mary Sparks' story, our Women of True Grit series, here on Our American Story. story and now it's time for our on leadership series where we hear from military leaders business leaders coaches pastors and community leaders across this great country and today alex cortez brings us the voice of energy entrepreneur chris wright whose liberty oil field services has two billion in annual revenue and employs over 2500 americans here's alex During college, Chris had a summer job at Honeywell. That changed his life. Very life-changing experience for me. I, uh, it's right when laser printers were coming out. There was a competing technology called thermal printers. You never heard of it because it didn't, it didn't win. And uh, I was on the thermal printer team. There was nine of us, six months to develop a manufacturer prototype of a printer based on this technology. And so, you know, I'm an 18-year-old kid so first thing I get is adult life's going to be okay. Everybody was incredibly nice and friendly to me. And man, it was, it was cool. 
The other thing I saw was, you know, so we get a design, you know, of mechanical systems that'll rotate this roller that brings the paper, electronics that drive the heating of this ink that push it out, all sorts of mechanisms. So, you know, when someone loads it backwards or wrong, it still works. Communication protocol with the computers that are sending the image to be printed. So, you know, it's a large mechanical and electrical design program. What I get out of the end of that is on the nine people on the team, two people, two guys, who I've not stayed in touch with, but I remember their names, Doug Beatty and Mike McNitt. They were awesome. They did probably 75% what was in the final printer. And, you know, five or six did the other 25%, and one or two, you could argue, contributed nothing that was in the final printer. And so, cool work environment. Honeywell was awesome. They tried hard to recruit me. But my takeaway from that was, oh my God, imagine a business if you only had people like Mike and Doug that were good at what they did, they, they cared about what they did, and they were all in. And I knew from that summer, now I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna be an entrepreneur. And I've never worked for a company with more than 10 employees that I didn't start from that summer at age 18. Following that very basic principle I learned, you know, which is just get the, get the right humans on your team. Doesn't, doesn't mean just the smartest, it means people are good at what they do, who care about what they do, and who are, who, you know, I always say when a war comes, who do you want to be in the foxhole with? Who do you trust? Who do you believe is, you know, loyal and on your team and all in? That to me, I learned that that summer. I've like, I've never increased my business sophistication. That is, that is the strategy I followed my entire career. I always hire the athlete. I don't, you know, I don't have a very narrow skill band with this degree that has worked in these seven things and then you got five candidates and pick the best. No, mine is find humans that you really think are gonna be special and great. Maybe they never worked in this area before, but hey, if they're smart and committed, they'll figure it out. People can figure out the specifics, but character is formed by then. Hire the athlete, hire the characters you wanna be in business with. And, um, and remarkably, that's been an incredibly successful business formula. Like all the great things we've done and that get attributed to my name, I didn't do those things. I wouldn't have done much at all on my own. I've been around and my businesses have done great things because of a team of humans that are passionate, that are good, that work together and are driven to move that ball forward. So it has been, it's been fantastic, it's been fun. And a lot of the very same humans. The first company I started 27 years ago, over a dozen of those folks are in this business today and five, and five of the six founders of this business were from that very first business. Multiple businesses in between as well. But it's you find those great people, those great partners, and you, and you stick with them. I've been an entrepreneur my whole career. 27 years I've run a company or companies in the oil and gas business. And if you make an asset, like you, if your job is to build office buildings, there's going to be boom times and there's going to be bust times because there's enough office buildings. Building oil and gas wells is the same thing. When you drill an oil and gas well, it lasts a long time. So by nature of that, you get a business that's cyclical. You're really busy and then it's less busy. It's really busy and it's less busy. That's tough. But from that summer job at 18, I realized it's all about the humans. So if it's all about the people, you can't have, oh, it's a boom time, you hire a bunch, and then oh, the workload is dropped in half, so you lay off half your people, which is what our industry generally does. And then when it turns up again, well, you, you hire people back. Well, how is someone gonna raise a family and have a stable thing? So what is one of the compensating things? People get paid a lot of money in this industry because there's this higher turnover. Um, but the problem is, how can you 
drive new technologies? How can you do better if, if people are coming and going out of the business all the time? So in my first company, Pinnacle Technologies, all the way through to this current company where we're sitting here, Liberty Well Field Services, the focus is about great humans. You want to be able to have the best people. You want them all in and committed to the company. And it, it's got to be mutual. It's got to go both ways. So I've been very lucky and very committed that in my 27 years in this industry, never laid off anyone. It's, 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 it's not a charity thing. It's not a, you know, well, we have enough money that we'll, you know, we'll just spend it on this. It's not that. It's the, it's the best long-term strategy for the strength of the business. Um, yes, do, do you in the bottom quarters or whatever, does it reduce your profitability in those quarters? Certainly it will. But you know, value isn't created in one or two quarters. It's created over years or decades. And the, the savings of laying off a bunch of people um, in what it loses in culture and loyalty to your company and relationships with your customer, your inability to advance because you're constantly turning over your people. It's, 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 I, I think it's, the, it's an example of penny wise, pound foolish. Let's save a nickel here but lose a dollar later. Well, if you're thinking long term, I'd, I'd rather have the 90, lose the nickel now and get the dollar later. I'd rather have the 95 cents than the five cents. So what it means when the industry turns down, we got to grow market share. We got we to get better at what we do. And we just got to grow the piece of the pie we have because the pie is shrinking. But by we all make less money, the start of the last downturn, the first thing we did was take the executive salaries and cut them by 25%. We didn't do any other income cuts for the company as a whole for maybe six or nine months later. But we all tightened our belts together to get through a tough time. And... Uh, it not only kept the family of, of Liberty and, and our families in a good place and intact and going forward, but it was tremendous for our business. We came out of that last downturn that was awful in a far stronger position than our competitors. We went from a small little regional frack player to one of the bigger players out there. And uh, we've been a year or so now, our industry's been turning down as well. There's been thousands of layoffs announced. In fact, I just wrote an email to go out to our whole company because there's worry again in our company that layoffs are coming because everybody else is laying off people. But layoffs are not coming. You know, we're staying true to that business metric that we want to win in the long run. We're not worried about the next quarterly's earnings would be better if we whacked, you know, 500 heads. We're caring about our return on capital and our creation of value over the next years and decades. And the central driver behind that is the people on the team. We got to build the team stronger and better. We got to deepen our relationship with our customers because downturns hurt them too. And we got to play for the long game. But yeah, I've been a little bit of an outlier in that respect, but I'm, I'm convinced as well, it's not only better for the humans in the business, it's better for the business. Not everyone can do it, but that has been a, uh, a commitment of mine. And, and uh, because I've been surrounded by great people, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have uh, had that record over the last 27 years. And you're listening to Chris Wright, and he's the founder of Liberty Oil Field Services. He's an energy entrepreneur, but more than that, my goodness, what a manager and what a leader. And this is our On Leadership series. And we learn a lot about Chris and his basic values about people by actually in big downturns and this, like other cyclical industries, you'll see these massive layoffs. And I've always wondered, why don't you just get everyone together and say, hey, let's all take a 10% pay cut, 15. You know, tell the kids you're not eating out for a year or two. It's so much better than you're fired. It's so much more noble. 
and you'll keep the family together. And when the business cycle reemerges, you've got your team. You're ahead of everybody. And what a great, what a great uh, business practice. But more importantly, what a great moral practice and human practice. If all businesses are about the people, then how you treat your people, particularly during a downturn, matters most. When we come back, more with energy entrepreneur Chris Wright, founder of Liberty Oil Field Services. Our On Leadership series continues. back with Our American Stories and our On Leadership feature with Chris Wright, founder of Liberty Oil Field Services, and we return to his passion for criminal justice reform. People that grew up in rough families with dads not at home, dads often in prison, in poor neighborhoods without a chance at education, they're, they're just outlook on life is different than ours. And, and when, when things are desperate, we make bad decisions. I've made a lot of bad decisions in my life. But if I had grown up in a different setting, my different bad decisions would have led a different place. And it leads a lot of people to prison at a young age, 16, 18 years old. Hell, they, they, they haven't even had a chance. They haven't gotten anywhere. And now they're in prison. You know, what happens when you're in prison, man? This, this is not an environment that lifts you up. And you, 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 you serve your time because you did do something wrong. You may have hurt someone or you committed a crime. You get out of prison. Well, you got a felony conviction. You, can get, you get out of prison. You're not going to get a job now. No, the, the, one of the first questions on people's job applications, have you committed a felony? You know, that's, that's on there. Well, all those people, I got to check that box. There's 10 people applying for that job. They're out. You're never going to meet them. They're out. They're out. Now they can't get a job. They didn't have a good education to begin with. You know, now they're in a worse circumstance than what led them to prison the first time. We've got, depends how you count the data, somewhere between 50 and 70% of the people that get out of prison will be back in within five years. Um, their whole life, they're not going to live these rich, meaningful lives that we all should aspire to. You've got to make those lives, but they don't even have the chance to make those lives. So we, we employ 50 formerly incarcerated people at Liberty because they made a mistake when they were young. I made lots of mistakes. We all make lots of mistakes when we're young. You should not be judged forever by a mistake you made. So these guys who work in our company, they get out. Um, they want it. They, they get a job. They get a chance to go do something and create value in their life and pay their bills and, and you know, get reunited with their kids and live their lives. They're awesome. We have one of the things that distinguishes our company from our competitors is low turnover. We have meaningfully lower turnover than our competitors. Among the people that were formerly incarcerated, we have even lower turnover yet. We're going through those numbers about how to count them and how to say them. But we have more than two times lower turnover than our competitors, I'll say that. And meaningfully lower, but I don't have a quantification of how much lower turnover among formerly incarcerated people. And I say that, that message as well to employers out there. Probably a lot of people listening to this show are like, boy, I, we, don't, I don't, we don't hire them for charity. We don't hire them for anything. We hire them for the same reasons we hire anyone else. Are they people with a good, positive attitude that I think is going to add value to our company and be loyal employees and do the right thing? That's the same criterion we hire people whether they went to prison or didn't. 
Plenty of people getting out of prison we wouldn't hire. Plenty of people that have never been to prison we wouldn't hire. But we treat them the same. But if you hire on that same criterion, I think the added thing you're gonna get is an even higher loyalty, an even higher loyalty. Someone took a chance on them, they're gonna work their butt off for your company. Chris also brings this love for people to folks outside of his company too, giving his time, talent, and treasure to nonprofits like the ACE Scholarships, which helps low-income students escape bad public schools and attend better private ones. Vinny's uh, dad was in prison. The mom was a drug addict. Um, he grew up in very tough circumstances. He had older siblings um, that were in poor local public schools and ultimately joined gangs and have, and have gone very much the wrong direction. Vinny got a scholarship, an A scholarship, that took him to a different school. Same kid, you know, as his siblings. He got, he got some luck. He got a scholarship. He got to go to a different school. Or it, it's not, we probably overemphasize they can do reading and math better. They can. But even more important than that is they start to believe that they're the authors of their life. It's up to them. They become less pessimistic. The world is the opportunity. It's all discrimination. I can't go anywhere. Pessimism is just crushing. If you don't believe you can do something, you're probably right. If you believe you can do something, you're probably right too. So that attitude chain set. So Vinny goes to schools, you know, they get his behavior under control. He believes he gets to author what his life is. He works, he works hard. Um, he's a dentist now. This guy, you know, graduates from college. He goes to dental school. He's making good money. It's just totally transformed his life. We had another awesome A scholar here, Alvin. Mom, his parents are very lightly educated Mexican immigrants, but came here to work hard and God bless them. And they've worked their butts off in this country. And uh, they live in a, in a poor area and Alvin wasn't in good schools. He gets an A scholarship. He goes to a school, he gets optimism. He gets better skilled or trains. He goes through high school, he goes through college, he works in the insurance industry now. This kid's 20-something. Um, he's making enough money to buy a house. Does he buy himself a house? He buys his parents a house. He lives in a small rented apartment. He bought a house and pays the mortgage for his parents to live in a house. Like that's not just economic success, that's, that's values, that's family, that's, that's morals. It is because we're giving people a different chance of a different life. Tell you one other story of, of Ace that I love because I've become very close to the family. It was a family in South Sudan. It wasn't even South Sudan, Sudan then. It was the southern part of Sudan during the brutal civil war. The government that perpetrated that civil war has recently been overthrown in the north of Sudan. And South Sudan has become an independent country. But one of the poorest spots on earth um, was, was a ground zero of this civil war. This mom and her two kids walks hundreds of miles to a refugee camp in Kenya. This, this gal, Achuil, she's never stepped foot in a classroom in her life. Illiterate, not a day of formal education. She wins the lottery years later, living in a refugee camp, comes to United, gets to the United States and they send her to Denver. Moves into Denver, immediately gets a job. She's an orderly in a hospital, hard working, hard driving, awesome gal with no education and her kids are in the local school. And her son, Dow, you know, is in sixth grade. Uh, he's, a, he's a tall African guy who 
you know, speaks broken English. So of course he's bullied and picked on and he's a tough dude and he's fighting back. I mean, he, he's not going a good direction. Although he's, he's in the land of opportunity. And, and by luck, she's looking for places where he can go to, there's another school nearby that's, you know, a small private school. Cheaper total cost, but she's got to pay out of her own pocket. She can't do that. Um, an A scholarship comes in, she does pay over $1,000 a year for education out of the money she's working and supporting her family. Um, and Dow gets out of a violent environment. He's years behind educationally. And so through junior high and high school, he has to catch up, works his butt off now because he believes it's up to me, it's up to me, graduates from a Rupe Jesuit high school, goes to American University in Washington, D.C., graduates. What does he want to do? He wants to help refugees that come to the country like him so they can get on the track to have a life. What's his little sister doing, who also made the giant trek as a, as a, as a very young gal? She's going to graduate from Notre Dame this spring. Um, she'll be in law school. She'll probably work for a couple years and she'll be in law school. She's got three other kids at home, younger kids. But an illiterate, illiterate immigrant from Sudan, South Sudan now, is going to, is going to be soon going to be the mom of two college grads, and I, I suspect she'll be the mom of five college grads in another ten years. You know, this is, this is what the American dream is about. Hard work and values can lead to success, but it doesn't lead there unless, unless you have an ability for the kids to educate. As she, as she says to me, I work with my hands. My kids are gonna work with their minds. Um, that's the American dream. We should do everything we can to bring the American dream to everyone, regardless of where they came from. The number one reason families come for an A scholarship is bullying, is to escape bullying and violence in tough environments in public schools. They're not fitting in well, they're not the big strong kids. They're, they're struggling or they're socially awkward or they're just not fitting in with the, the neighborhood thing. Because it's low, low income people, it's quite often the parents didn't have much education, right? This is this cycle of poverty thing. So they're not as even aware that, 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 that you know, they don't, you, a lot of them don't know how good of an education their kids are going. They know when their kids come home, are they energized and happy, or are they fearful and pessimistic? You know, so they can see that. But no, it is not dominantly to go to a better school. It's just to escape a, a very uncomfortable environment. But these 2,600 kids we have on scholarship now, at the end of their career, they have a higher graduation rate than Coloradans as a whole, of all incomes, not just compared to low incomes. They have higher math scores, higher reading scores, higher propensity to go to college, uh, higher residency in college to actually graduate in college. It is a dramatic transformation because it's just the public school system is the single most un-American institution in the country. We take a Soviet-style, top-down, monopoly delivery system of a product, right? What product hasn't gotten massively better and cheaper in the last 50 years? Only one, education. Private schools in this country, on average, are 25% cheaper to educate a child than public schools. We think of Andover, Exeter, you know, Kent, or you know, the fancy schools, that's, that's what we think of. Those are a tiny sliver of private schools. The vast majority of private schools actually cater on average to lower income people than the population as a whole. To me, this is a way to spread opportunity to people born in the wrong zip codes. Said beautifully by Condoleezza Rice, it's not where you came from that matters, it's where you're going, right?
And you've been listening to Chris Wright. This is our On Leadership series. And my goodness, leadership in the business space and then leadership in the civic space. And so many of our business leaders do both. And by the way, there are so many other kinds of civic leaders that we do stories about too. And that's your local pastor, whoever's running the local PTA, the American Legion, even the Little League and the Pop Warner football teams and the coaches and the influence they have on kids and particularly kids who need mentors. And my goodness, the ACE scholarships, 2,600. That is just remarkable. Go to acescholarships.org, by the way. Chris Wright on leadership here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show. And that's love stories, death stories, war stories, stories about our history and our nation's history, stories about sports, the arts, you name it. And we talk about law enforcement a lot and our nation's military, the men and women who serve this country, and mostly, almost uniformly, with honor and with dignity. And today we're joined by a local. His book is Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the toll of a double life, and Charlie Spillers joins us now. Charlie, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. Let's talk about what we always do when we start this show. Let's talk about beginnings. You were born in Louisiana, and by the way, my wife and I got married in New Orleans, so we love this part of the country. Of all the cities in the country to get married, this Jersey boy found himself in the heart of Cajun country, the capital of Cajun country. My wife was born and raised in Biloxi. And so the home city of Biloxi is New Orleans, as you know. Talk about how that rich Cajun history formulated and formed and helped inform your life. Yeah, I briefly wrote about that in the book, uh, about the fact that my uh, great-grandparents, who lived near New Iberia, Louisiana, couldn't understand or speak English, only Cajun French. So my parents would have to interpret. And whenever I'd stay in summers with my grandparents, the neighborhood ladies would come over and join my grandmother for coffee on hot summer days and gossip. And sometimes uh, villagers would drop by and talk to my grandfather, who was a renowned hunter and trapper. And they would lapse into French at times. And I would watch. I couldn't understand it, but I became fascinated by their body language and movements. And I realized that later on, when I was working undercover, I was had learned an early lesson about how people are reacting to things by watching the body language. So that was a key part of helping me survive and succeed in later years, besides the fact that it's a rich, rich culture. You bet. And by the way, what people say and how people think and feel, the dissonance is usually only understood by sight. Right. And so it's, that's an important lesson you learned. By the way, I want to quote one thing from the book. You said, in addition to Cajun French and Cajun hospitality, their home was filled, and of course you're talking about your grandparents, their home was filled with the delicious aromas and tastes of Cajun cooking, game stews made with thick brown roux, steaming chicken and sausage gumbos, spicy jambalaya, crawfish etouffee, and crawfish bisque, and I'm getting hungry already, Charlie. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about your dad. He was a tool pusher in the oil fields. But his work helped shape your life because, well, tool guys, oil guys, oil field guys move a lot. And so you moved a lot. I want to quote you from your book again, and then 
hear your response. I was always the new student, the outsider, the stranger walking hesitantly into a classroom filled with kids who'd grown up together. How did this help you become the person you are today? Well, you can imagine years later when I'm trying to find some way to infiltrate criminal groups. I'm walking into people that I don't know, complete strangers. There's that same sense of dread and and being anxious about it, only more so undercover. But exposed to those experiences early on, about once every three years, moving towns, new schools and all that, it helped me learn to adapt to new situations, to find ways to become friends with people. And so that was a broadening experience, a very broadening experience for me. Yeah, stepping into new situations, you either had to learn to adapt or there was going to be a lot of suffering, I would assume, Charlie. Let's talk about the next important uh, chapter and phase in your life, and that's the U.S. Marine Corps. Talk about those weeks in Paris Island, because in order to make the Corps, you got to make it through the cut and the tough circumstances at Paris Island. How did that help shape your, your life? Paris Island was hard. It was a hard 13 weeks, and it changed my life. I became part of something that was bigger than me, and that's where I learned that no matter how difficult something might seem or how impossible, you can do it. You can achieve things you think are impossible, and that has carried me through all my careers as in law enforcement as a federal prosecutor, later on as uh, the uh, Department of Justice at that shape of rock. All these difficult things, they don't phase me anymore. I know they might be difficult and hard, but I know some way I can do it. For instance, in the Marines, if somebody says, take that hill, you don't say, well, I don't have enough men. I don't have enough equipment. We're tired. We're worn out. Whatever it takes, you take that heel, and that's carried me through, and I'm sure other Marines do. Yeah, no doubt, and some of our heroes on this show, we did an hour on Fred Smith, who, of course, built up FedEx, and he said, look, everything I needed to know, I didn't learn in business school. I didn't learn in college. I learned it in the U.S. Marine Corps, and you know when Fred's saying that, right? that he means it. It's not just a a platitude. Let's talk about Vietnam. You were there. I think what people always wonder is, most Americans have experienced Vietnam through two or three movies. Apocalypse Now, The Deer Hunter, uh, so on and so forth. Right. Uh, talk about your experience in Vietnam, what you saw, and what that was like. Well, I was there in 66, and uh, we were engaged in, I was a Marine squad leader. We were engaged in what I would call, describe light combat. Of course, if you're killed or grievously wounded, any combat is terrible. But we were involved in firefights with V.C., ambushes, and things like that. One thing that I don't think people understand about combat, at least, for instance, in Vietnam, is how it wears you down. Sleeping in two-hour segments and then on watch two hours from your foxhole. Sleeping two hours, then on watch. And then all day, you're up, you're patrolling, and that next night you might be out on ambushes, you're eating sea rations, you're not getting as much food. You're losing weight. You're tired all the time. You're worn down. And when you're out in the bush, you're carrying all this equipment. You're loaded down with it. You're exhausted. You're dirty all the time. It takes stamina. It takes endurance. And it takes that will not to just sit down and say, I quit. You've got to keep going. And then, of course, you have 
uh, sometimes boredom, and then all of a sudden, uh, a terrifying moment, the uh, ambush erupts, gunfire just cracks by your head, and it's after that that the adrenaline dump goes away. And after that, when you start feeling like, oh, my God, you know, that was, oh, that was close, or, or you start feeling things, but you're so busy in combat, you don't have time to feel that. And hold that thought, Charlie. We'll be right back to talk about life after Vietnam and after the Marine Corps. We're talking to Charlie Spillers, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're joined today by Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And we were just talking about Charlie's upbringing in Cajun country, joining the Marine Corps, and experiencing firsthand the stresses and boredom of combat duty in Vietnam. And Charlie, you came home from Vietnam, and you meet a girl. And thank goodness, I mean, what would happen to us if we didn't? We'd be living under a bridge and drinking, most men. And then you tried to live an ordinary life after meeting your bride. You tried to live a domesticated life and settled down and joined the phone company, of all things. How did that work out for you? Uh, and that was fine. It was Southern Bell Telephone Company in North Carolina. And uh, I was a technician, and it was a very, very good job. But after about a year, I got to missing the excitement that I'd found in the Marines. And also, I was also pulled by a sense of duty. So I, I applied for a job in law enforcement. I took a job as a uniform uh, police officer, making less pay than I was making with the phone company. And my work day went from a regular five-day work week to a six-day work week. That's without overtime. Simply because I wanted to, you know, experience that adventure and excitement and also sense of duty of doing something meaningful so uh and by the way your wife had to be thrilled with this decision <laughs> because that's what all wives want they want you to be away more and make less lee the people who have read the book so many of them had said your wife is the real hero and for those who have read the book you see what she went through you see some encounters she had that were uh, terrifying he really was and is the hero of the book. Yep. And let's talk about Baton Rouge because this is where you cut your teeth in law enforcement. And it doesn't take long for you to get a certain specific role and job inside the Baton Rouge Police Department, and that is intelligence. So this right. begins your life into this space called undercover. Right, exactly. I was in uniform patrol for two months, and... Uh, the captain who was uh, in charge of the intelligence division asked to come see me at my apartment, at our apartment. And he came over, we had coffee, and uh, he told me he was head of the intelligence unit. He asked me if I would volunteer to go undercover. I had no idea what that meant, but it sounded exciting. So I said, oh, yeah. And he said, well, don't report back to your ship and stay away from police headquarters. That started my 10-year undercover career, you know, six years with the Baton Rouge P 
PD and uh, my first five years with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics later on. So during that first six or eight months, I was immersed as an undercover officer in intelligence. And my job was to infiltrate the burglary rings, safe cracker rings, just the criminal groups. And therefore, my office became the local bars. There were two or three local bars where some of those groups hung out, and that was basically their headquarters. And so my nights would be spent there, and we would all gather at a you know, particular table or tables pulled together, and normally the bar owner you know, knew everybody, and the dancers, bar girls would come over and sit during their break. It was all a social group, but it was also a criminal group. And so um, usually... Uh, I'd get home maybe 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, or I'd get home a day or two later after I went out. And that was the thing that was uh, hard, especially hard on my wife. When I left to go out, she never knew if I'd be back in two hours writing some reports or if I'd be back uh, late that night or early in the morning or two days later. She never knew. You could never plan anything. I never knew. Yep. And I would assume that, and you indicate this in the book, you know, if you're a member of the police department, you get to do the cookouts with the police department, you get to hang out in the in the streets with the police department, do the community building, the community relations, you're wearing the uniform, folks get to know you, and here, you get none of these what I call social benefits of being in the police department. You're a lone wolf, in a, in a sense. You've got a, maybe a couple of other guys you work with, you report, some of the cops might even, not even know that you're undercover. Talk about what that strain was like on your wife and obviously on you, but I think more, look, you picked the profession. So in some respects, you are hardwired for stress. You're hardwired for this. But, you know, the average wife is not hardwired for this any more than the average military wife whose husband goes off for three years or a year to Iraq or to, or to Germany in World War II or to, North, or to Korea. Uh, talk about your wife, because it, it did really interest me in the book, the, that her role in this. Yeah, uh, we couldn't let our neighbors know I was a police officer. Even though they were good, fine people and they were trustworthy, you, an undercover agent gets burned down normally through someone trusted, telling a trusted friend, who tells a trusted friend and a trusted friend, next thing you know, it's out on the street that, hey, there's an undercover agent that's working and uh, with penetrated such and such a group. Or if you're in a small town and you're the stranger in town and it gets out, there's an undercover agent in the area, all fingers point at you. So that's your biggest threat, one of your biggest threats of compromise. So she couldn't tell neighbors. And sometimes we'd have a cover story about how we – you know, I made my money at the time. She was working, I believe, as a secretary about how I made my money. And we couldn't go out together. I mean, we might go out to the grocery store together every now and then, perhaps to a movie every now and then, but we had to be very careful. And I describe in the book how a couple times when we went out, we encountered criminals I was working on. And I couldn't let them see my wife and I together because she looked straight. And it would be out of character for me to be with you. What are you doing with her? Yeah. I remember in one particular instance in the book, you sort of just drift away from your wife. She sort of gets it. And she walks away and goes to the movie theater. And you walk in another direction. And then you get back together hours later. Yeah, exactly. When I saw them and we were walking across the street to the entrance to the theater, all of a sudden... I whispered, 
keep walking, keep walking, keep walking. And then I veered off to the bad guys, and she just kept, I mean. She knew just what to do. She knew what to do, but she didn't know it through training. She knew it through instinct, instinct. and fear, Yeah, which she handled well. And if she sees you afraid or, is, or you sensing fear, she knows that there's something up right. and just move. Right, like when the, uh, when the uh, drug dealer came to our house and saw her out back. And he pointed to a, we were living in a mobile home. He pointed to it, that home, and he said, hey, does Mike live there? And I was using the name Mike. Right. And she immediately knew what that was. And she was out back with our little two- or three-year-old son, you know, at the little playground. And she said, oh, oh I don't know who lives there. And so she got Terry, our son, and she went off in a different direction. She went around out of sight. Then she came back and looked. She didn't see him. Here's what she was thinking. I had gone off to go to the convenience store. She was thinking, Charlie, I'd be back. I need to go warn him that this man's, I need to warn him. So even though she knew the danger was there, she rushed back to the, to the trailer, and I was head back inside. And she came inside, and she said, Charlie, Charlie. And she closed the door, and she was looking out the curtain. Charlie, Charlie, somebody's out there was asking for Mike. And I said, what? She said, yeah. And she told me, and I jumped up and grabbed my gun, and I went to the windows and started looking around all over, holding my gun. But at the same time, not only to you know defend and protect us, but at the same time thinking I've got to keep calm for her, too. So I'm looking all over, and Finally, I go out, go out, and I say, lock the door behind me. Don't let anybody in but me. And I go out, and I walk around. Then I, I go back and say, I'll be back in a moment. I get in my car, and I, I go all over for 15, 20 minutes. I even park and watch cars because it's a threat. It's a threat, but I don't see anything. So finally, satisfied that, well, we're okay, I go back to the house, the trailer, and I go inside and say, look, everything's okay. Uh, I think we're all right. I go back to writing reports at the table and uh, of a recent buy, a drug buy or something. And she says, well, after a little while, I'm going to the store. So she leaves. And Terry, our son's in the bed sleeping, and there's a knock on the door after she left. And I go to the door, and I open the door, and I look down. It's the drug dealer, Ural. And he looks up at me, and he says, hey, Mike. What are you thinking then? Yep. Why all of a sudden is your heart and your mind doing then? Bam, bam, bam. So there were situations like that. And uh, she went through that, and it was terrifying for her. But she handled it well. And yes, she did. We're talking with Charlie Spillers, a man who has served the public in so many ways as a U.S. Marine in Vietnam, as an undercover cop for 10 years, and then later as a career federal prosecutor, and last as a Justice Department attache in Iraq when things were really hot. Charlie's book, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. It's a must-read. And more with Charlie and his stories here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're continuing our conversation with Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and The Toll of a Double Life. And now let's get straight to one of the best stories in the book, and it's about a woman and a woman very close to you. Talk about her. That's my undercover partner with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, Sarah Neal. She and I worked together undercover in Jackson, pretending to be a Mississippi, pretending to be a couple to infiltrate heroin trafficking rings. When we were finished, I went down to the Gulf Coast and started driving a taxi cab as a cover to infiltrate the rings down that way. She went to South Mississippi. While she was in South Mississippi, an agent in North Mississippi asked Sarah to come and join him to do a heroin buy bust of four ounces of heroin. So Sarah drove up to Columbus, Mississippi, met the agent, and the drug dealer had told the heroin dealer, had told the agent, look, drive outside of Columbus on this narrow two-lane road, drive about 12 or 15 miles until you see my car parked on the shoulder of the road. And when you see my car, you park on the other shoulder of the road, and we'll do the deal in the middle of the road. And don't worry, don't worry. There are no houses around. Hardly anyone uses the road, and it's level there for a mile or two in both directions. If anybody, other cars on the road, we'll see them uh, in plenty of time, you know. So it's like being on the moon, remote and isolated. So that day, Sarah and her partner, Jerry Dittman, drove out in the undercover car. And all agents on surveillance had to stay back out of sight because of the road, so Sarah and Jerry were really on their own, and it was sleeting some that day. It was miserable, almost around time for Thanksgiving, and as they drove out that road, they saw the heroin dealer's car. They parked on the other side of the road. While Sarah waited in the undercover car, the agent, Jerry, got out, and he met the heroin dealer in the middle of the road. He pulled out a $10,000 flash roll. The heroin dealer produced the four ounces, and when he did, the agent, Jerry, pulled out his gun and yelled, police, you're under arrest, you're under arrest, hands up. And when he did, on the heroin dealer's side of the road, across the field, 75 yards away, was the heroin dealer's brother with a 30-30 rifle. And he had the undercover agent, Jerry Dittman, in his sights. And he had his finger on the trigger. And when Jerry yelled, police, the man pulled the trigger, bam, bam. And Jerry got hit. And he staggered in the road. Bam! The man kept shooting. Detman, Jerry Detman, staggered in the road. He couldn't see where the man was shooting from, but he could tell it was from a tree line. And Jerry started blindly just emptying his pistol toward the tree line. Pow, pow, pow. Meanwhile, the man shooting back. Bam, bam. Sarah Neal, the undercover agent, is in the undercover car on the other side of the road. She's in relative safety. She could stay there, scrunch down, or get down, crouch behind the car. But instead, she saw her fellow agent staggering in the road. Bam! He got hit a second time. Sarah jumped out of the car without hesitating, ran around the front of the car with just her little Model 65 shot 38 to her, her partner. She ran into the danger zone, the killing zone, and as she did, the heroin dealer in the road went for his gun, and Sarah popped off a shot. Pow! It hit the man in the hand. Sarah got to Jerry Dedman, the agent, and as she did, bam, Jerry got shot a third time. The rifleman was shooting at both of them. Pow, pow. Sarah grabbed Jerry, pulled him to her side of the road. They tumbled down an embankment. And when they got down there, 
Jerry rode over, flat on his back. Sarah scrambled up, watching the skyline with her gun for the bad guys. She looked over at Jerry, and she saw he was covered with blood. And she thought, he's going to die. I've got to get him to the hospital, or he's going to die. So without hesitating, she got down, she pulled him to his feet, and she started tugging him up the embankment, still holding her gun with one hand, and thinking the bad guys were up there. She got him to the top. The bad guys were gone. She got Jerry to the undercover car, and he was bleeding all over her. She put him down in the back seat, and he was bleeding over the back seat. And about that time, surveillance cars roared up and started fanning out for the bad guys. Sarah raced back to Columbus. She found the hospital. She took him into the emergency room. And the emergency rooms weren't equipped then like they were now. A nurse said, here, put him in this room right here. And they put him on a table. And the nurse said, let me go see if I can find a doctor anywhere in the hospital. And the nurse left. And Sarah was there along with Jerry bleeding. And as she was there after a couple of minutes, she heard hollering at the entrance that she'd come in. Somebody was hollering, ah, ah, Sarah stepped out of the room and she looked. And coming through the doors was a man holding his right hand. Help me, help me, help me, my hand, it hurts, help me. Yes, yes, it was the gunman she had shot in the road. The heroin dealer she had shot in the road. Help me. Sarah stepped back in the room, reached in her purse and got her gun and handcuffs. And she went out and arrested him. Yes, she arrested him. She put him on the floor of the emergency waiting room on his stomach. She knelt down and started handcuffing him behind his back. And as she did, he yelled, don't put him on too tight. It hurts too bad. Don't put him on too tight. So she made sure she put him on a tad too tight. Ah! The only one around was an elderly gentleman sitting there watching all this with big eyes like he was watching a movie. And Sarah bent over the man she had arrested, looked at him and said, Mr., Mr., would you watch him? Would you watch him? I need to get back to my partner, and if he moves just an inch, would you yell out? Would you do that? Yes, ma'am. So she went back with her partner. They found a doctor. Other agents flooded in from around the state. And this happened about noontime, about midnight. Agents finally convinced Sarah to go get some rest because she had driven up that day, four-hour drive, been through this, go, go find a motel room, get some rest. So she drove into downtown Columbus. It was sleeting. The lights were off. No cars were out. It looked like an abandoned town late at night. She found the Holiday Inn. There were only a few people there, and they put her in a back building. She double-locked the doors because the rifleman, the shooter, was still uh, loose, and she took a shower. And when she did, she took her gun to the shower with her and had it in there. Finally, she got in bed, maybe about 2 in the morning. Well, if that happened to you, would you go off right to a contented sleep? Well, she didn't either. She tossed and she turned. And finally, maybe a half an hour before daylight, she finally fell into an exhausted sleep. And at daylight, the phone next to the bed rang and woke her up. It was an agent at the hospital. She called in left word where she was. And the agent said, Sarah, I've been been here awake all night. Can you come relieve me? And Sarah Neal got up after a half hour sleep and she got dressed. But the only clothes she had were those she had worn the day before because she thought she was going to be back in South Mississippi that night. So she put on jeans that were had blood all over them. 
a blouse with blood all over it and a jacket with blood all over it. And she drove back to the hospital. Sarah Neal stayed at the hospital all day, oftentimes fighting to stay awake. That night, around 8 o'clock or so, she finally left, driving back to Columbia, to uh, South Mississippi. It was uh, 210 miles, a four-hour drive on the back roads. And the whole way, the whole way, she fought to stay awake at the wheel, still wearing those bloody clothes. You know what she did the next morning? Next morning, she got up and went back to work as an MBN agent. She later received an award from Parade Magazine, which used to be the, the popular supplement Sunday papers, award as one of the 10 outstanding federal, state, and, law and, and local law enforcement agents in the nation. They flew her out to an award ceremony in uh, Los Angeles. But I love that story. I love that story because many people didn't know about it at the time, and they certainly didn't know about the details. And I love that story because, to me, that story is about the people we have in law enforcement today, the men and women in federal, state, and law enforcement today, that courage, that dedication that's exemplified by Sarah Neal and Jerry Debman. That's the kind of folks we have serving us today. And when we come back, more from Charlie Spillers, his terrific book, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And, you know, Charlie, a lot of people know about the Italian Mafia and the big city mafias of New York and Boston and, and Chicago, and we've seen countless movies about that kind of mafia. But you infiltrated a very different kind of mafia, the Dixie Mafia, which is a whole different animal. There's no city to hide in. There's lots of open land. People know each other. And everybody in these rural areas is tight-knit. But that's exactly why the Dixie Mafia was so successful. Right. And, of course, over several states, a, uh, it's a loose network that of criminals, career criminals, engaged in everything from auto theft to uh, armed robberies to, uh, and by armed robberies, normally they would pick out targets, like somebody living in a rural area or on the edge of a town who who reportedly has a lot of money in their safe or in their home, and they'll put on ski masks and do a home invasion. And what the, what they might do is something like this. Let's say there's a couple uh, Dixie Mafia people who live around Calhoun City, and they're well-known. And that's Mississippi. Right, Calhoun City, Mississippi, south of Oxford, very rural. Uh, they're well-known. But they happen to be talking with people in town, and somebody just mentions somebody who's spent a lot of money, and all of a sudden— They'll target that person. And what they'll do is maybe they'll call Dixie Mafia members in Oklahoma who will come down and do the actual hit, the actual home and the robbery, and then they'll split up the money. Or somebody in Oklahoma or northeast Mississippi or somewhere else will see some kind of a scam target and then call others to come do it, and they split split up. So they come together in these little tight-knit conspiracies to, to do things. Uh, and 
that most of the time they're facing rural understaffed law enforcement agencies, and they're operating over a multi-state area. So they're hard to target. They're hard to work on. And they're also very dangerous. So in northeast Mississippi was the auto theft capital of the U.S. It had a reputation nationwide among law enforcement agencies as being the area that had a lot of chop shops where they chop up stolen cars and stolen car rings, and they were Dixie Mafia-connected people. And so when our agency, I was with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, they came up with $10,000 of special funds that could be used for buying stolen cars. Uh, I volunteered. I was excited when I heard that. I volunteered to go up to northeast Mississippi to see if I could infiltrate them. And I had no idea how I would do it when I volunteered. But after I went up, I met two sisters, two big old girls that were real rough who were cooperating. And they were on the edges of these groups. And they were cooperating. And they said, yeah, they would introduce me and vouch for me. Uh, But it's hard to break in. I need more than that. So I told the two girls, I said, well, look. Here's what I want you to do for two weeks before I ever show up. I want you to just talk to people about me. Every now and then mention Mike. Oh, our man Mike down in Alabama, he's going to be coming up. Boy, he's so bad, he'll cut off your head and crap on your neck. And I said, wait, wait a minute. Don't tell them something that bad when I heard about it. Oh, my God. But anyway, they, so they <laughs> spread the story. They spread the story that I was, uh, I was a real criminal. I was big in uh, auto theft, and I was at a higher level because I thought, what I needed to do, I couldn't come in as an auto thief because, you know, they would know too quickly, and they all know each other. I needed to come in at a higher level than the rest of them, like I'm a some kind of boss in an organization. So I, as I came in, I came in as, like I said, a boss of a multi-state organization that helped dispose of stolen cars. And I still needed to break in, though. So I had the girls introduce me to the owner of a pawn shop who I knew was connected with these people. And uh, I showed up and said, hey, man, I'm Mike. Yeah, they told me you're okay. I can talk with you. He said, yeah, 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 yeah. They told me you're okay, too. I said, hey, uh, uh, I want to see if you might be interested in some TVs. My people took off a truckload of televisions. Don't don't worry, don't worry. There's no heat around here. It was in another state. Uh, We've already gotten rid of it. But there's a couple TVs left over. I just want to get rid of them. Would you be interested? He looked at me real carefully, kind of scrutinized me, and then he said, well, what kind? How much? So then I knew it was okay. So we struck a deal. I quoted a price where they had to have been stolen. And so we arranged for me to deliver to him the next day after his business closed. So the next morning I went to another town to Walmart, and I bought two brand-new TVs. And I left them in the box but stripped all the markings off so they couldn't be traced, you know, by the box, and then delivered those to him as uh, coming off the stolen shipment. He vouched for me, and a week later introduced me to two guys involved in auto thefts and burglaries, and I wind up dealing with them. In fact, one of them later showed me about 37 rifles they'd stolen from a collector, real quality rifles that they were wanting to unload, and they took me out in the country and showed them to me, and we took one of them up in AR-18, I think it was, and fired it several times and all that. But uh, later on, one night I was riding with the two criminals, and one of them said, hey, look, uh, my such-and-such, it was a relative of his, lives on that 
that hill up there in that house, uh, he's supposed to have about 100000 in his safe. Of course, he can't hide. He's hiding that from the government. Now, what we want to do is we want to rob it and get it, but even with ski masks, he didn't know it was us. So how about you doing it? But you see, that's the that's yep. the way those folks are. Yep. But anyway, so I got got involved with uh, infiltrating the uh, auto theft rings and uh, buying stolen vehicles from uh, Corvettes to um, tractor trailer trucks. In fact, tractor trailer truck just completely full of boxes of furniture from one of the furniture plants. Um, a brand new BMW just stolen off the new car lot in Chicago twelve hours before and driven down. Nice deal for twenty two hundred dollars. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I got some real real bargains, but uh, that was exciting. Don't buy a used car from this man. <laughs> yeah, don't buy a used car. Whatever that. you do, yeah, no warranty. And now, Charlie, let's talk a little bit about your life after a decade of working undercover. Your career really is remarkable. Because Charlie, you ran every every avenue of law enforcement. It's very rare to go from a, a cop to then Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics. You were in quickly. You spent your time in undercover work, which is, I think, the most stressful and some of the most important work that can happen. And then you go over to the prosecutor side, but not just any prosecutor. I mean, you end up in a U.S. attorney's office. So talk about that segue from being the guy on the street to the guy in the suit. And I've often in my life, I have a law degree, noticed sometimes there's a, a, a tension between the suits, the prosecutors and the cops. Sometimes they like the suits, sometimes they don't like the suits. More often than not, I've seen very good relationships, but it's a very different mindset. And sometimes the cops aren't too happy that the prosecutors are giving them a hard time, but they want more evidence. They just need more evidence to make a case. And they're saying, nope, can't take it to, can't take it to trial. And I worked in a prosecutor's office for a summer. Can't take it to trial. Need more evidence. And the cops are going, damn it, got to go back. And so that's what I mean by the tension. Right. Talk about being on that other side. Now, you're the prosecutor, and the FBI is coming to you. You're at the U.S. attorney, and you're saying, we need more. We need more. Right, right. And, and I love doing that. Uh, my job was I was an OCDF prosecutor, Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force prosecutor, uh, targeting major uh, drug trafficking organizations and trying to take down, disrupt them and take down their hierarchy. And those investigations might last anywhere from six months to three years. And usually it's multiple uh, federal, state, and, and local investigators, FBI, DEA, Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, uh, some PD, SO officers. And I enjoyed and loved those investigations because here was a target, career criminal, oftentimes violent, that needed to be taken down. How do we do it? And we're working toward it. I think uh, the agents I worked with came to appreciate uh, my experience as in law enforcement and expertise in figuring out ways to make cases against those folks. And it's like one of the task force agents told me later, he said, man, I used to fuss and cuss. You would have us doing so much. I'd fuss and cuss, but I learned a lot and I learned how it should be done. And I learned that we keep on going until we can cut off those defense avenues of escape so that when we have the case and we go to court, it's what people think. Yeah, it's a federal case, meaning, no, they're not going to be able to get out of it because you thought of how they're going to attack the evidence. You thought of the reasons they're going to try to use to confuse the jury. We keep going until we've got enough to get a conviction. And it's like a FBI agent and a state agent said when we were starting out a case, the FBI agent came over to start working with us on one of those cases. And the state agent said, um, 
well, you, you better get ready because for the next three years, you're not going to get much sleep. And that's about the way we, we work. We used to tell folks we'd work from can to cane, can to cane. And there you have it, our interview with Charlie Spillers, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And you can catch this on OurAmericanNetwork.org if you want to share it with friends, with family members. All of our work is up there, and we've done any number of stories on law enforcement, on soldiers, and the life of the men and women who wear uniforms uh, serving our country. Charlie Spiller's story, what a terrific one, from undercover agent all the way to the U.S. Attorney's Office. We didn't even get to his time in Iraq when the whole place was blowing up, and he was an attache there. The guy just loved going into dangerous places, and he loved strapping on that uniform and a sidearm and taking care of folks. Thanks, Charlie, for the time and for a life well served. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Charlie Spiller's story. Story.